verse 23, chapter 1. We're breaking into a thought here, but don't worry about it because I really want to key in on the last fragment. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast, not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard. Let me interject a question. Tell me about the Colossians hearing the gospel. Who did they hear it from? Thank you. Wonderful. Epaphras, the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. He was made a minister of the gospel. Verse 24, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. That is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. To whom God willed to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. We proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ for this purpose also I labor, striving, according to his power, which mightily works within me. Now, I want to um, make a few observations here before we plunge into this. Verse 24, we have suffering. In verse 25 to 27, we have the secret, or the mystery. In verse 28, we have strategy. And in verse 29, we have struggle. And this text is really about Paul's apostolic ministry, which I find it interesting that he is sharing with them something of his ministry as an apostle. And we really get to see what drives this man, what's important to him, and why he does what he does. Let me give you a little snapshot of what was going on in Colossae. We're not going to reconstruct the whole letter. But there are a few important things that I think you need to know that will help illuminate this passage. At some point after Epaphras planted the church, some teachers came through Colossae with a teaching. They were peddling a teaching. And one of them was this. They were saying that, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, he is the Son of God. Yes, he's the Lord. He's your Savior. That's all great. But there is a higher wisdom. There is a higher wisdom that only a special group of people can attain to. As it were, uh, an elite group of really serious people. They can attain to this higher wisdom that surpasses learning about Jesus. And Epaphras... He, he's not in touch with this higher wisdom. He didn't give it to you. He just didn't know about it, and his mentor Paul certainly didn't either. 
Now keep that in mind as we read this, because it'll help us to understand some of the things that Paul says. I want you to notice in verse 23 that um, Paul uses the word gospel. And does anybody know what the word gospel means? Right, good news, glad tidings. And then he says, I am a minister of the gospel, in verse 23. And what does the word minister mean? Serving. It means a servant, exactly. Think of a, a waitress, a waiter. Think of a slave. Think of someone who serves another person. That's what a minister is. It's really important we understand that, because today, minister means something very different. A minister is someone who's, you know, he's up here. <laughs> Everybody else is down here. <laughs> But when Paul used it, if you could go through your New Testament and every time you see minister, change it to waiter, waitress, slave, servant, then you got the idea. So he's a minister of the gospel. Now look at verse 24. I rejoice in my sufferings. And I just want to stop right there, hit pause. Where is Paul right now? He's in prison. And if you remember how he got there, he almost was killed in a riot. He got the liver beat out of him in Jerusalem, and that's what landed him in prison eventually to Rome. And if we remember all the sufferings that Paul went through, it's pretty mind-boggling what this man went through. Let's just kind of rehearse it. What are some of the things that Paul had happen to him? He was shipwrecked, okay. He was stoned. And left for dead. Just think of a man being assaulted by rocks to the point where he's left for dead. He was beaten. How was he beaten? He was beaten with rods, birch rods, on his back. He was also uh, beaten in another way. He was flogged. Yeah. Right. Forty lashes. Minus one, five times, beaten with rods three times. What else did this man suffer? He lowered in a basket. Yeah, he was getting out of Dodge. They were going after him. He was lowering a basket to leave the city, running away. He was slandered everywhere. His reputation was destroyed. People were lying about him left and right. Yeah, he was mocked, made fun of, right? Betrayed. He betrayed, yeah. If you could imagine, just think of this man beaten with rods three times, flogged five times. By the way, uh, some people never survived that physically. They would die because of loss of blood and so forth. Stoned. Can you imagine if we saw Paul of Tarsus, what his back must have looked like? Think about Paul's back. Meatloaf is perfect. Uh, this is a man who physically was probably mangled to go through all that. And I guess my point here is what he says, I rejoice in my sufferings. And uh, the New Testament over and over again has this theme. Rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. Find joy in your suffering. Now notice he doesn't say, I rejoice because of my suffering. But I rejoice in my suffering. We're Americans. We are allergic to all forms of suffering. 
In fact, uh, there's a whole theology that goes like this, that if you suffer, then you're out of God's will. And Christians by the droves believe that. Even the Jews had a, a twisted theology that if you were sick, there had to be sin in your life or in your parents' life. And here Jesus is hanging out with the people who are sick and outcasts and so forth. Um, the only way you can rejoice in suffering, and by the way, it is it's probably one of the most difficult things to remember, is when you're suffering, when you're going through it, to remember to rejoice in it. It is extremely difficult to remember. One of the luxuries and the privileges of being in a, in a body of believers like this is to remind one another, which I'm doing right now. I'm reminding you and I'm reminding me to rejoice in our sufferings. The only way you can rejoice in your suffering is you have to understand, even if you don't grasp all of it or the details of it, you have to understand that there is in God's mind and heart, there is purpose in suffering. It's not wasted. Think through your mind the things you've learned about God, the Christian life, what you've read in the scripture, things that you maybe remember. What are some of the redeeming values of suffering. So turning to the Lord, where maybe we would not have if we didn't go through something. Um, David said in the Psalms, if I was not afflicted, I would not have sought the Lord. So there are times when that happens. Second Corinthians 12, because of the abundance of revelation, the Lord sent a thorn in my flesh. And I prayed three times, and I said, take it out of my life. And he said, my grace is sufficient. Weakening, humbling, breaking. How about getting more ground in, in our life? Transformation. It's not a painless process. <laughs> I think there's a passage somewhere in the New Testament that talks about Job's faith being tried. And when you, when you look at the, the metaphor that's used in the New Testament, it's as gold being tried by fire. When you examine that, you see that the fire brings all the dross to the surface, so the gold is not just gold, it's pure gold. So in the end, God is getting something of himself into us and getting something of self out of us through suffering. And you know this is all going back to having Christ formed in us. And so the bottom line, boys and girls, is that if you're a Christian, you're going to experience suffering. The difference between the Christian and the unbeliever is that the suffering that comes to the Christian, number one, comes from the hand of God. And number two, if we accept it as such and rejoice in it, then it's not wasted. You know, and you could waste suffering. You can never fail a test that God brings into your life. You just have to take them over and over again. So he's the teacher. He never fails his students. He just keeps reissuing the test over and over again. Forty years in the wilderness, right? But there's something else here, too, that I think is astounding. Let's, let's continue to read the passage. I rejoice in my sufferings, and look at this, for your sake. Now here's an apostle in a prison, and he's suffering, and he has suffered, and he's never met the Colossian Christians, with the exception of just a few of them. He knows Philemon. He probably knows Philemon's son, Archippus, who is not here. And yet he says, it's for your sake. 
here's another principle, I think, that whenever you suffer, whenever I suffer, as members of the body of Christ, it is not just for us. Whatever God is gaining through us in that suffering, whatever He's after, it's for the church. It's for the body. The death works in us and life in you. I suffer so that you will receive life. And there's something about the, the vessel being broken so that you know the bread can be broken so that it's distributed. And Jesus took the loaf, he broke it, and then it, it made more. And I think if we can uh, remember this, and it's very easy to forget, and without one another, we will forget. When you're going through it, trust me, you're going to forget to rejoice. You're not going to even understand rejoicing. And you're not going to um, remember that this is for not only for your sake, but it's for the sake of the body. I have a feeling and a theory that if you're not part of a body of believers then most of your suffering is pretty much wasted. If you're just an individualistic Christian, just trying to be the perfect Christian, and you're out there suffering, who is it for? It's for, Paul says, your sake. And then what he says next is just astounding, inexplicable. Scholars don't even understand it. I'm not going to tell you I understand it. But look what he says. And in my flesh... I do my share on behalf of His body. I do my share of suffering on behalf of His body, which is the church, in filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. I am filling up, by my suffering, I am filling up what is lacking in the afflictions of Jesus. What on earth is he talking about? I thought that when Jesus suffered and died, it was finished. Well, it was. As far as his redemption goes, it is as complete as complete can be. There's nothing to be added. It's finished. It is done. But there is another side of Christ's afflictions. There is another side of Christ's sufferings that are not complete. And, guess what? Each of us, as members of His body, has been given a quota of that suffering. Brother Milt, you've been given a quota of the sufferings of Christ to help complete them. We all have. Jesus Christ suffers in his body. Jesus Christ still suffers in his body. Now, can anybody think of something that happened to Paul very early on where he got a glimpse of this? Yeah. Well, back in Acts, when he was on the road, when he, when he was faced with the Lord, he said... Why do you persecute me? Absolutely. Bingo. Here he is, Saul of Tarsus, a Jew, Pharisee. And Jesus appears to him. And what is he doing? He's persecuting the church. He's dragging the women and the men, dragging them to be imprisoned, beating them, flogging them, watching them. Well, you watch Stephen die. 
And Jesus appears and says, you're persecuting me. Jesus Christ is suffering in his body still. And when I read this, there's one scripture that comes to my mind. Can anybody think of what it is? It's very similar to this. The fellowship of his sufferings. So brothers and sisters, when you suffer, you are sharing in the sufferings of Jesus Christ and you are suffering with Christ. He's suffering in you. Now why is that? I have the foggiest idea. I don't understand it. I just know that his sufferings have not been completed. We are so united with him that when we suffer, he suffers. Well, I just think as a, as a parent, when, when our children hurt, mm-hmm. we hurt with them, mm-hmm. if not more so. Well, that's a good analogy. Well, what get me in this verse is the, ver- the, the word lacking. Yeah, what I is lacking? If we, don't, if we run away from it, there is a lack in the body. This has to be gone through so that the body benefits. And Paul was very conscious of this. He understood that his suffering just wasn't a painful time. He was doing it for the benefit of the church. And I must remember this. We do well. We are wise to remind one another when you're going through it. You are tasting something of the sufferings of Jesus Christ. He is working in you in ways that you may not understand. He's gaining something in you. And it is all for the sake of the body. Is all for the sake of the When we say body, we're not talking about the mystical body that's we can't see or touch and we hear about it. We're talking about, look around, saints. This is the body who benefits. When I suffer, guess who benefits? The brothers and sisters. When you suffer. So this puts a, a different light on suffering. May we remind one another to rejoice in our suffering. There's also something in the New Testament about being rewarded for your suffering. Something Jesus said. For my sake, for their reward is great. Yeah. Well, T. Austin Sparks taught, and I think rightly so, that that we make the most progress in Christ, and we discover Christ anew when we are put in a position of suffering or difficulty or obstacle or trial. It's it's God's magnificent way of turning our eyes to him and gaining territory in our lives Um, listen to this passage just listen to this always caring about in the body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body for we who live are constantly being delivered over to death for Jesus sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death works in us, Paul speaking of him and his co-workers, but life in you. And so the way to minister life to one another, the way to experience the life of Christ in its fullness, there will come suffering. There will come that breaking. And I have news for you, and I want to say this. I want to go on record to say this. We are now... This fellowship is in the honeymoon season. There will come a day where you will experience some pain, some hardship, some difficulty, some suffering. And it will come through some of the believers here. Not going to be intentional, but there will be 
hurt feeling. There will be a feeling of slightedness. And the fact of the matter is, I mean, we're all fallen. And we do these things unintentionally. But when that day comes, you will have the choice. Am I going to embrace the death of Jesus in this area? Or am I going to resist? This is why, this is why, brothers and sisters, this is why meeting outside the institutional church will never be popular. Because the easy, convenient thing to do is to keep everybody at a distance, file into a building once a week, twice a week, whatever, sit and listen to the sermon, sing some songs, and leave and live your individual Christian life. It's hard to be in an authentic community where you're sharing life. Because that's when the dross comes in. And that's what happens. Yeah, yeah, you hurt my feelings. I'm going to take my bat and ball and go, and I'm just going to find another place. Just mark the day, and but remember two things. Rejoice in your suffering. And secondly, this is the cross of Jesus Christ, and God is bidding you to die upon it so that he can gain more of himself in you and in me and so that there will be life to minister to his body and to others, even the world. Okay, let's move on here. And then our Lord said, He that seeks to save his life will lose it. But he who loses his life will save it. And that's the way to life, brothers and sisters. So may we remind one another of these deeper things when it comes to the painful and the hard times. And um, there's so much more we can say, but let's, let's move on to this next passage. Of which, of this church... I was made a minister, a servant, according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me, again, for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Now, I just want to um, highlight this word stewardship. In this day, a steward was a slave, it was typically a slave, who was the manager of their master's entire estate so they were basically the the one in charge of the master's possessions and Paul said that he was stewarded stewarded the gospel which many Christians think they've heard but we're going to see what it is he was stewarded the preaching of something he calls the word of God now, I want you to look at this passage very carefully. God bestowed on him. God called him. God dispensed into him his stewardship, which was to fully preach, to fully proclaim the word of God. Now, look at the next verse in conjunction with this, and you give me a definition, not based on other passages of Scripture, but on this passage right here, verses 25 and 26, what, according to this passage, is the Word of God? The mystery. The mystery. The Word of God is the mystery. I want that to sink in. The Word of God is the mystery. Now, he just said that in verse 23, he said, I am a servant of the gospel. I am a minister, a servant of the gospel. And here he says that I was made a minister, a servant, according to God's stewardship, that I might fully preach, fully carry out 
the word of God. And then he says, the word of God, look what he says, verse 26, is the mystery. Now I would like to present to you with this idea. Paul is a servant of the gospel. He's a servant of the word of God. He's a servant of the church. He's called to preach the word of God. And he is called to preach the mystery, which is the word of God. I would like to suggest to you that according to the New Testament, the gospel, the word of God, and the mystery are all the same thing. Now if you would hold your finger here and turn with me to Romans 16. Now you will not hear this on TBN, trust me. Romans 16. I have nothing against TBN, but you will not hear this on TBN. Romans 16, verse 25. We're going to go back to... uh, Colossians in a minute. Look at what he says here in this verse. Same kind of language now. Romans 16.25 Now to him, speaking of God, who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery which has been kept secret for long ages past but is now manifested and by the scriptures of the prophets, according to the commandment of the eternal God, has been made known to all the nations leading to the obedience of faith. And if you look at how Paul speaks, and especially in the Greek, when he keeps compounding these different things on top of one another, he's using them as synonyms. So when he says, my gospel, what is my gospel? It's the preaching of Jesus Christ. What's the preaching of Jesus Christ? It is the revelation of the mystery. It's all the same. So, brothers and sisters, I would like to have you go back to Colossians 1, and let's look at what the mystery is. And you all know what the mystery is if you've been around here for the last (laughs) four months. The gospel is the word of God. The word of God is the mystery. And we're going to look at what the mystery is in just a second. But I want to submit to you that most Christians have never heard the gospel. If you were to ask most Christians, what is the gospel They will tell you a part of it. But according to this passage, it's the mystery. And if you were to ask most Christians, what is the mystery? You will get a lot of blank stares. What mystery? Well, it's all over the New Testament. It is the thing that God has had in His heart from before time. And let's read what it is. The mystery... The preaching of the Word of God, verse 26, that is the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations. But now, now meaning in the first century, but now has been manifested to His saints. And what does saints mean? Holy ones. Brothers and sisters, you are holy ones. The mystery has been manifested to you. And what is the mystery? Verse 27, to whom God willed to make known. God wants to make known something. What is the riches of the glory of this mystery? The wealth of the glory of this mystery. This mystery is so glorious. This mystery is so full of the wealth and the riches of heaven. What is this mystery? What is this word of God? What is this gospel? This good news? The riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles. Now, we just have to hit pause here and kind of unravel a little bit of this. 
The Gentiles. Let's translate that over to our time. In that day, the Gentiles were the most despised, filthy, ungodly, despicable, poor, illiterate, unlearned people. So much so that the Jewish people who had a covenant with God since Abraham hated them. So in our day, because we're sitting in a room full of mostly Gentiles, with the exception of two, at least two people who are from Abraham's stock, pure, pure stock. So in our day, translating this over, this would be poor, uneducated, despised, <laughs> I mean, I'm being serious. In that day, you have to contextualize this. That's what Gentiles were in that day. It's the least of humanity. Okay? That's who God chose the mystery, the riches of the glory of the mystery to be manifested to. Those kind of people. The people that nobody wants anything to do with. Not the pure people. Not the rich people, not the educated people, not the religious people, not the people that, forgive me, Alan, not the people that have a covenant with God, the people who don't have the uncircumcised, the filthy, unwashed. That's what that means, brothers and sisters. This tells you something about your God. He's a champion of the underdogs. Oh, please. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. Wow. Beautiful. Okay. So let's read it again. Now we've all we've all heard it. If you have been around for the last four months, then you have heard something of the riches of the glory of this mystery. And I say something because the riches of Christ are unsearchable. But we have touched some of those riches. And we will, we will go on a journey of exploring those riches. And that journey is going to take us through the rest of our life. But that's what we're doing here. In this little gathering of Gentiles and a few Jews, we're going to explore the riches of the glory of this mystery. And here's what he says. It is. The one who created all things. The one who is before the beginning. The invisible God who manifested himself visibly in a human being. The one who came to earth, never sinned, and died upon a tree. The most gruesome way a human being can die. To reconcile a fallen creation to his father. The one who is before the beginning the visible image of the invisible God, the one in whom all the fullness of the Godhead, all the totality of God dwells. Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, the Nazarene carpenter, in you. Jesus Christ, in whom God dwells in his fullness. Jesus Christ, the Alpha and the Omega, beginning and the end, the center of the universe, the creator and the recreator, Jesus Christ dwells 
inside human beings. And in this case, to these Gentile Colossians, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now you can't get any better than that. You can't get any higher than that. That all of God dwells in you and me. And I have defined the church this way, that the church, speaking of the New Testament, the way the New Testament envisions it, the church, the ecclesia, is a group of people who are learning how to live by an indwelling Lord. And we live by His life. And we learn to live by His life. And by that living, we manifest Him. He's made visible again on the planet. Now this is the mystery. Christ dwelling in you. This is the mystery of the ages that was kept secret. The God of the Old Testament willed and never let on to anyone that he was going to come and live inside his people. Not among them, not with them, but inside them. And I want you to think about this question in your own mind. That is the gospel. That is the mystery. That is the word of God. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And I want you to think in your mind, you don't have to answer this now because we'll be here going around the room. We'll be here all night. But how many times have you heard the mystery presented to you in your life as a Christian? How many times of all the sermons you've heard, all the books you've read, all the television programs, all the radio stations you've heard, how many times have you heard this gospel, this message how many times have you heard the mystery unraveled that the living God dwells in you and you can live by his life? I think it can be fairly said that this is not preached often at all. It's usually the opposite. It's we are, we are abibas, we are not worthy. That's what I've heard yeah. in most of the Or God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life and you're going to go to heaven and I mean everything else. Except that he lives in you and you can live by him. Yeah, this is the word of God, brothers and sisters. This is the gospel. This is the mystery that was hid in God. And it's incredible. And you know what? I'll tell you something else. It takes a revelation to see it. The Holy Spirit must open our eyes to see it. Because once we see it, and the first time you see it, it is a mind blower. That God, the Almighty Creator, lives inside of me. And lives inside of you. And we can live by his life? Whoa. Yet the gospel that most of us hear is, Jesus died to bring you to heaven. When the fact of the matter is, he died to leave heaven and come inside of you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, let's talk about this phrase, hope of glory. Think about what you've read in the New Testament over the years. Um, what is the Christian's hope? You know, we have a hope. And Paul talks about it a lot. Who can tell me what our hope is? You couldn't be more correct. You, you really have been listening closely, haven't you? What is the, seriously, what is the Christian's hope in the New Testament? Do you know? There is an answer to this. That we will be glorified with him. And what does that mean? Sharing in resurrection life. That's exactly correct. All the time when you read the word hope in the New Testament, it's always related to 
this mortality putting off our mortal body and being glorified and being resurrected with Christ. As he is, so shall we be. It is a resurrected body in the kingdom of God. It is the putting off of this mortal flesh. And the word glory, this is where we get glorified, glorified bodies. 1 Corinthians 15 talks all about, Paul talks all about the glorified body. How it's different from the mortal body. But the word glory, best definition, but I can give you, is it is the highest expression of a life. If you think of, uh, I've used this illustration of a, um, you plant a, a rose seed in the ground and it begins to grow, right? You begin to see the stems and the thorns. It's not glorified yet. It's a life. It's maturing. But once it comes into full bloom, and you see the flowers at their highest peak, that rose bush is now glorified. It has come to the highest expression of its life. And Jesus Christ dwells in you and me, and his life comes into us as a seed, an incorruptible seed. I'm using the language of the New Testament. An incorruptible seed has been deposited within you. And this is what it means to be born anew, born from above, born a second time. Birth is the impartation of life. So Christ comes into you through the Spirit. He comes in as a seed. And now that seed begins to grow. As you water it, as you yield to it, that indwelling life, as you surrender to it. And then as you go through suffering, that's the negative side, He's gaining more territory. He's bringing death to the self, death to the flesh, death to you, who is an Adam. So you've already died, but now you're experiencing that death. And now the seed is taking more ground, and it's growing, expanding in you. And, and Paul says, Christ is being formed in you. The seed is growing. Well, there will come a time, brothers and sisters, where the seed will come to the highest expression of its life. And we will be in full bloom, and that's when we will be glorified. And there will be no sin, there will be no flesh, and this dead carcass, which is decaying every day, will be put off, and we will have a body likened to his, and it will be incorruptible, untouchable by death. That is our hope as Christians. That this life will come to its fullest expression, and the result is that Christ will be revealed through us at its maximum highest degree. Isn't that awesome? That's an awesome hope. Well, Christ in you, He's in you now. And He's growing in you. And He seeks to grow and take more ground and express His life through us in greater and greater degrees until we come to the fullness of His life. And that's glorification. So, that's kind of a, a summary of <laughs> Christian development. The, go- the, the glorified rose, the, the height of the rose, Yes, it's in there. It's in the DNA of the seed. Yes, absolutely. But it has to go through that process. Yes. To reveal itself. Yes. I guess that's that's the suffering. That's the negative side of it. Yeah, and um, and then the positive side is beholding him. We behold him. 
where we grow from glory to glory. It's looking in a glass, the glory of the Lord. So there's the fellowshipping with Christ. There's the learning Christ together on the positive and then on the negative side. There is the, the application of the cross and the dying and the death. And therein lies our development as Christians. Um, you had something, brother? I was just thinking when you were saying that there's a seed deposited in us, that it's Christ in us. When you said that our hope is that this, this body will be at one point be glorified. In the same time, that would be the same time that Christ is continually being expanded and glorified himself. Would that not be true? Glorified in the saints. He's actually a phrase out of Thessalonians. There will come the time where he will be glorified in his saints. Here's another passage in Romans where it talks about the whole earth is waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. You know, we should end with that song. Uh, yeah, that'd be a good way to end this meeting. So here's our hope. And you know, when things get really tough and rough and we're going through it, it's not a bad idea to remind one another. This is only temporary. Our hope as Christians is eternal. It's not a cop-out. It is, we hope for what we cannot see. And the perseverance of the saints is found in that hope. We have a blessed hope. It's not to be taken lightly, but Christ in us, that is the mystery, brothers and sisters. And we're here to be stewards of the mystery. And by the way, an apostle, an apostle is an apostolic worker, someone who's sent out to the work is a steward of the mystery of God. Their task is to proclaim this mystery and to spread it all over. And the task of the church is to reveal the mystery to one another, to angels, to principalities, to powers, and even to the lost. And that's what we're doing here in this little town with this little group of Gentiles. That's the stand we're taking. We are standing for the mystery, and Paul has another phrase for it, the eternal purpose. That's what the mystery is. His eternal purpose. Purpose he's had in his heart from before time. And if you don't know what the eternal purpose is, it's the most glorious thing you can know as a Christian. And uh, I would suggest to you, if I could wish a Christian wish, read a book entitled From Eternity to Here. You'll understand, hopefully, what the eternal purpose is. And there's other books as well, such as the Community Life of God is also a book about the eternal purpose. We're not going to tell you who the authors are of these books. You just have to figure that yourself. But anyway, verse 28. And we proclaim the health and wealth gospel. And we proclaim evangelism and the salvation of the world in one generation. And we proclaim healing casting out of devils, power, signs and wonders. And we proclaim personal holiness in living a good, clean life and being a good Christian and making God happy. And we proclaim the 613 laws of Moses and that you must obey all of them, including the 614th, thou shalt not forget the 613 laws. <laughs> And we proclaim how to be a good leader. And we proclaim how to have a good family life. And we proclaim 
how to do homeschooling. And we proclaim, fill in, folks, fill in here. I can. How to discover God's wonderful plan for your life. And we proclaim the end times, the mark of the beast, and the false prophet. And we proclaim the authority of the believer over demons and dungeons and dragons. And we proclaim the pre- and we proclaim the five points of Calvin. And we proclaim the fivefold ministry. And we proclaim spiritual gifts. And we proclaim house church and simple church. And we proclaim missional church and missional. And we proclaim social justice. And we proclaim the purpose driven life. And we proclaim what? environmentalism and we proclaim capitalism and being a good republican and we proclaim being a democrat and we proclaim we proclaim how to raise children the bible studying the bible yes theology in King James only we proclaim memorizing the Bible. Okay, you got the point. Can we all read it together? Okay, read it with me. And we proclaim Him, a person. We proclaim Christ. We don't proclaim things. We don't proclaim its. We proclaim the Lord Jesus Christ. We proclaim Him. And if you proclaim Him, He will never wear out. And you can speak for the next 150 years and you still will have so much more to say because you can never exhaust Him. But it takes a seeing of Him first. And when you get a glimpse of who He is and how rich and how glorious the wealth of the riches of the glory of the mystery Christ in you, then you have found the bottomless pit. It has no bottom to it. It goes on and on. You have found the inexhaustible the inexplicable, the incomprehensible, the incomparable, peerless Christ in whom all things, all spiritual things dwell. And uh, I have often said to you, when you listen to someone preach, ask yourself, am I hearing, am I getting an it? Am I getting a thing? Or am I getting a him? Are they giving me Christ or are they giving me something else? And the whole point of the Colossian problem, the whole root of it, was they were getting distracted from Jesus Christ. They made the mistake of believing that there was something beyond Him. And now, let's move on here. We proclaim Him admonishing every man and teaching every man. Now notice He says every man. And why is He saying that? Because these teachers came through peddling this doctrine that it's only for an elect few. So only the special people that are going to get this greater wisdom. No, he says we proclaim him admonishing every person, teaching every person with all wisdom. In other words, there is no higher wisdom. And later in the, in the next chapter he says, Christ in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hid in him. And so he adds that with all wisdom because he's responding to this charge that there is more wisdom out of reach to most people except for the especially elite. 
We proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man. Let me just say this about the words admonishing and teaching. You will find in some translations they will have admonishing as warning. And I've looked at this word in the Greek and I've looked at some of the best scholarship on it. And um, the, the definition that makes the most sense to me is this. First of all, the word admonishing in the Greek literally means to put into mind. Okay, to put into mind. And the meaning it has is, is that of straightening out muddled thinking and immature thinking. Um, I think it was Gary who said not too long ago that, that it has the idea of putting the mind in right order. And so basically the idea here is that admonishing would be clarifying, confusing thinking and correcting erroneous thinking. So it has the idea of clarifying confusion and um, correcting error. Okay, So it's kind of the negative side to teaching. You can think of uh, teaching is constructing, building, and you can think of admonishing as tearing down. For those of you who have read Pagan Christianity, that's an admonishing book. What it seeks to do is clear away, uh, straighten out, uh, correct erroneous thinking, clarify confusing thinking, and basically tear down the, the old house, right? And where reimagining church builds up. So an apostolic worker is going to do both. He's going to admonish, and they're going to also build up. You know, So just think of the negative, the teardown is admonishing, and the buildup is teaching. I think warning, it can have that flavor, but I don't see Paul doing a whole lot of warning in his letters. But he does a whole lot of admonishing. I mean, he does a whole lot of clarifying confusion and tearing down wrong thinking and things like that. That's some of the best scholarship I've read on that. So he says, admonishing, teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every person complete in Christ, mature in Christ. And Paul's heart was to present the grace of God to every human being so that they would receive this Christ and receive his life. But it didn't stop there. It wasn't a soul-winning endeavor. It didn't stop there. To present every person mature in Christ. To bring them to grow in this grace. To grow in this indwelling Christ. And that's what real apostolic work is. And it is not disassociated from the church. Because the only way, brothers and sisters, we can mature as Christians, naturally and successfully and properly is if we're part of a body of believers that's pursuing the Lord. That's our habitat as Christians. That's the environment in which we grow. You cannot find Christian growth outside of a community of believers in the New Testament. It's not there. It doesn't exist. You as a Christian, I as a Christian, all of us were made, we were wired to be part of a community of believers, to grow in that community. To be built together. That's how we grow. That's how we are ever going to find true spiritual maturity. It doesn't happen outside of it. An isolated Christian, an independent, individualistic Christian, all by themselves, trying to live their Christian life, is unworkable. He would be holding the Lord when he says, you know, from glory to glory, we're being transformed into his image. And he starts out with, we all. We all. With unveiled face. And he's talking to the Corinthian believers who are part of a community.
So it's never extracted from that. So brothers and sisters, let me just encourage you. You are in your proper habitat. We endeavor to grow in Christ, to mature in Christ, to present every person. Don't let man slip you up there. Man includes woman. Every person complete in Christ. And this was a heavy responsibility that weighed on Paul. He understood his, his apostolic commission. And then the last verse, which encourages me greatly. For this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. And uh, I'll tell you why this encourages me greatly. I want you all to weigh in on any of this that I've shared. I'll stop here. We have a paradox here. On the one hand, he's talking about himself striving, toiling, laboring. And the word strive there, the Greek word is a word that was used to refer to athletic contests and games where the athletes were striving to win. The actual Greek word is agonizome. Agonizome is the Greek word for strive. What does that remind you of? Agonize. Agonize. So here on the one hand we have an apostle saying, I am striving, I am agonizing, I'm sweating it. And then on the other hand he talks about God is working in me. God is empowering me. So you've got two totally different lines of thought here. You've got him working, but then you have God's power and God's labor and God's energy working. Let me read it again. For this purpose. For what purpose? To proclaim the mystery, to proclaim Him, to admonish and teach every person, to bring them complete into Christ, into the fullness of Christ. For this purpose, I labor, agonize, according to His power, which mightily works within me. The point there being that the power of God working in you is not incompatible with you striving sweating blood and tears and the divine abling of God the enabling of God is not incompatible with you toiling and working that encourages me because as someone who writes and speaks and travels it has never come easy to me to write a book which in all my books I'm proclaiming the mystery I'm seeking to proclaim the mystery um, it has never come easy to me to prepare a message. There's a certain amount of agony that goes with it. Someone once said, to write a book is simply to sit in front of a typewriter and open a vein. And in this case, in my case, it's to sit in front of a computer and open a vein. And to co-author a book with another author is like opening up two veins. It's even harder to write a book with someone else. I've had the experience once and I'm having it right now and it's very hard. That encourages me because there's another part of this that with the agony and with the striving there is the sense and the realization that God is empowering. And there's an energy that's not coming from me, it's coming from Him. And I say this to all of you in a way of encouragement. To receive the enabling of God to minister, to share, to encourage your brothers and sisters to speak to someone who needs ministering in the world or in the church or another Christian, a fellow Christian who doesn't fellowship with you. Anything you're going to do that's of a spiritual way, it's going to combine 
the power of God, which you will realize it because you'll say, this isn't me, this is him. I'm not capable of this. On the other hand, and by the same token, and I will say with the same breath, you're not just sitting back on autopilot. You're not being lazy. There's an actual work that you're doing too. And uh, so I find that very encouraging, personally. Okay, I'm through. Open it up for anything. If you want to add anything to this, share anything, react to anything, complete what is lacking in what I have shared, your quota.